0: From Public Radio International, This is the World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Merry Christmas. It's Tuesday, December 25th. I'm Aaron Schachter. Today it's official. Voters in Egypt have approved their new controversial constitution, opponents vow to keep fighting it. Also, we sample some of our favorite stories of the year, among them how an African woman ended up saving American lives on a World War II battlefield. The number of lives that you touched is incalculable. There are men and women in America who would never have a father or grandfather if you hadn't been there to provide them basic medical care. Plus, the sound of sleigh bells loud and clear in Kolkata, India.
1: E.R.I.'s The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in select theaters, Friday.
0: I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Here are just a few of the sounds of Christmas Day being celebrated around the world today. In Bethlehem, Palestinian Christians celebrated Mass at the Church of the Nativity. From the Vatican in Rome, Pope Benedict urged people never to lose hope
2: for peace, especially in
0: places like war-torn Syria.
2: Once again, I appeal for an end to the bloodshed, easier access for the relief of refugees and the displaced, and dialogue in the pursuit of a political solution to the conflict.
0: The Pope also prayed for peace in Nigeria, where gunmen attacked a church last night during a Christmas Eve service, killing at least five people. In Afghanistan, NATO troops enjoyed a traditional turkey dinner at their base in Kabul, U.S. Sergeant Willie Dansler said he enjoys the camaraderie among the French, German, and American soldiers during the holiday. Christmas in Afghanistan is amazing. The countries have come together, and we have joined uh, to celebrate this Christmas Day. As you can see, all the people here in Afghanistan are enjoying the meal as a family. In South Africa's Soweto Township, worshippers attended Christmas Mass today. Many prayed for the health of Nelson Mandela.
1: We wish him a very speedy recovery, and we wish him a Merry Christmas. We wish him well for all the days that are left for him.
0: And these hearty Germans sang a few carols before jumping into an icy Berlin lake, a Christmas Day tradition there. Some wore only Santa hats. One German said the Christmas Day dip was wonderful, Very nice and refreshing. Christmas is also big in India. Even though Christians make up barely 2% of the predominantly Hindu population, it's a national holiday there. Indians call it Badadin, or the big day. In the city of Calcutta, or Kolkata as it's now known, people have been frantically preparing for the holiday. Sandeep Roy is the culture editor for the Indian news website First Post. He lives in Kolkata. Sandeep, so what is Christmas in uh, Kolkata like? Describe the scene for us, if you would.
3: Aaron, the British are gone, but we kept Christmas. It is indeed a big day here. Areas of the city are all lit up. There are giant images of Santa Claus inside every mall. There's a manger scenes in parks. And if you go into the uh, 100-year-old Newmarket area, it's just this crazy place where Christmas trees, ornaments are being sold. And people are practically trampling over each other to try and get their, their last shiny ball or bell or a fruitcake for 40 rupees, which is about less than a dollar. And this time, I also saw live turkeys being sold on the street. And people standing next to them were all taking pictures of the turkey with their mobile phones. And somebody said, what is that? Is that an Australian chicken? And the person next to him said, no, no, that's an Australian ostrich.
0: Uh, So so turkeys aren't uh, normal there?
3: Normally you don't really get turkeys. But now during this season, different restaurants do advertise turkey with chestnut stuffing or turkey in various forms. And the man who was selling the turkeys told me that he's had a decent sale and that they taste pretty good in a curry as well.
0: <laughs> Curried turkey. That'll be great. Now, as you say, it's a bit of a mob scene there. So obviously, this isn't just Christian holiday because the very small percentage of the population is Christian.
3: No. The holiday has been secularized. This has become a time of the year where families, Want to go out and enjoy the cool weather, which is a change here. And they want to go and look at the lights or they want to go for dinner. So it's become a family outing holiday. When we were kids, you know, even though I grew up in a middle class Hindu household, we did have a spindly little Christmas tree, and I used to get cotton wool from my mother's first aid box and makes uh, snow for it. But now with the entire mall culture that's come up, you know, Christmas has been sort of amped up a notch because for the malls, it's a way to drum up business.
0: Now, is this a shock for you? Because you lived in the United States for 21 years, right, in San Francisco, and now you're coming back to this.
3: It is a bit of a shock. I mean, in America, you'd, you know, you'd heard about the Christmas crowds at the mall right before christmas but i honestly had not seen a christmas stampede till i walked into a confectionery in calcutta on christmas <laughs> eve i looked at and all these people wearing the red santa hats all standing like i don't know anywhere in america where people would want to stand in line for an hour to get a fruitcake you know yeah, God, tell us about that
0: is that a normal thing to eat in india a fruitcake? <laughs>
3: apparently at this time of the year, it is the thing to eat. There is a bakery, which is the only Jewish bakery possibly left in India called Nahum's. It's over 100 years old. People wait for over an an hour in line to get a cake. And inside, wait, wait, wait,
0: wait a minute, wait a minute. The Jewish bakery makes... Fruit cake on yeah. Christmas for Hindus. There's some joke in there somewhere. There,
3: there's a joke. You just need to put a Chinese restaurant in there somewhere.
0: <laughs> um, another interesting uh, thing about Christmas in India is this mixing of traditions, right? Christmas, the the manger scene in the middle of town. How does that work?
3: Yeah, there is a definitely. You know, Christmas has gotten a little bit of Indian feel to it here. It's been sort of. Uh, ethnicized, if you will. So at the manger scene that was put up in my old school, actually, which was a Jesuit missionary school, I saw that Mary looked like she was wearing a sari, and Joseph had on this sort of Indian dhoti kind of Indian costume, and and one of the wise men looked like a Hindu god. And there was this other manger that was hidden behind a blue curtain when I saw it. And it was a couple of days before Christmas. And the man there said, oh, you can't see the gods until the 25th itself. Because that's sort of a Hindu tradition where on the day of the actual worship, there's a ceremony that brings the god to life. So, so in that sense, people had absorbed all these different traditions and sort of made it their own. And it sort of summed it up for me when I went to a mall here and saw something you would only see in Kolkata, which is a rickshaw, a hand-pulled rickshaw which had been decorated with Christmas decorations and gifts and put there in a pride of place. And I was thinking like, gosh, so so here you don't need reindeer anymore. The elves can just pull Santa along.
0: Sandeep Roy writes about culture for the Indian News website First Post and is also a commentator on public radio here in the U.S. He sent us lots of pictures of Christmas in Kolkata, uh, which we'll have on our website, theworld.org. Sandeep, thank you so much. Thank you. In Egypt, supporters of a new constitution are claiming victory. Today, the country's Electoral Commission announced the constitution was approved with 63.8% of the vote. Opposition leaders had alleged there was fraud in the two-round referendum and say they will continue to fight the official results. On the line with us from Cairo is reporter Noel King. So, Noel, the opposition says they won't abide by this vote. What happens now?
4: Well, it's not exactly clear. The opposition has said they will appeal, and we don't know if that means they plan on launching some sort of legal challenge. But at the moment, it looks like this will be Egypt's constitution for the next couple of months at the very least. Uh, I think most people assume that the opposition's best bet is to put in a good showing at the country's or in the country's upcoming parliamentary elections. We've known all along that once a constitution is approved, we have 60 days uh, in which the country needs to basically elect a brand new lower House of Parliament. This is a very, very powerful House of Parliament that will ma- be making a lot of the laws and the legislation going forward. And if if they want to get around to changing bits of the Constitution, it's going to have to be done at this point through the legislature. So what the opposition needs to do is get their supporters out in the upcoming parliamentary elections and make sure that they get enough of their members into this new legislative body so that they can make changes to the Constitution if that's if that's how they decide to proceed.
0: Now, we have talked about this before uh, with you as well. But if you could just quickly explain what the most controversial aspects uh, of the Constitution are.
4: Critics of the Constitution say that it does not protect the rights of religious minorities. They say that it does not protect the rights of women. They say that the language in the Constitution is very vague. It doesn't exactly make it clear whether certain rights are protected or whether they're only protected in certain cases. But the biggest problem that people have with this Constitution is the fashion in which it was created. Remember, it was a hundred-member panel, but many of the members of that panel who were secular, who were liberal, who were Christian, walked off towards the end of the process. And so this constitution was it, it, it's sort of put together by a group of people who were mainly in the political Islamist camp, either members of the Muslim Brotherhood, supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood, or members of even more conservative Salafi parties.
0: The turnout for the referendum was about 33%. Why is the number so low? Does that suggest people didn't care about the uh, referendum?
4: Well, I'll tell you what I've been hearing from Egyptians anecdotally. I think there are two parts to this. I think, one, Egyptians are a bit exhausted by the voting process in their country. There have been five national votes or voting processes, parliamentary elections, presidential elections, several rounds of each you'll remember, since Hosni Mubarak was overthrown uh, two years ago, a little less than two years ago. People are simply exhausted. Now, in addition to that, this referendum came on the heels of several weeks of very deep uncertainty in Egypt. Egypt, which at times plunged into chaos in the streets, outright fighting in the streets. And some people, I think, were simply tired of, of the amount of uncertainty that the country's gone through. And they said, look, we've had enough. We're going to stay home. It's just not worth it.
0: Now, you mentioned chaos in the streets. There's been a lot of fighting, certainly. Um, now, chaos in the economy um, because of this this vote.
4: That's right. In fact, we've known for quite some time in Egypt that we are on the brink of what everybody is calling an economic catastrophe or cataclysm, even. Uh, there were two very striking news reports today. The first is that certain banks in some parts of Egypt, we saw the Associated Press reporting, uh, say that they are running out of dollars, that Egyptians are, I- in a sense, running to the banks trying to withdraw foreign currencies because we understand that the Egyptian pound is probably going to be devalued sometime in the next couple of weeks. The other thing is that Egyptian authorities announced today that Egyptians will no longer be able to leave the country uh, with more than ten thousand dollars in any foreign currency, so dollars euros, etc and what that points to is the fact that the government understands that people are concerned about the the what some say is the imminent devaluation of the Egyptian pound uh, and they 're trying to basically keep money in the country
0: now this may be a, a silly question in light of all that we 've discussed, but Do you see things settling down politically, socially, economically any time in the near future?
4: You know, Egypt really needs to stabilize its economy. And if it does, I think we might be looking at a possible upswing. But the fact of the matter is this. Following this constitutional referendum and the clashes in the streets that preceded it, we are looking at a very deeply divided country. The upcoming parliamentary elections are certainly not going to to help that situation. You'll have both sides trying to get their supporters out in the streets, trying to make their case to the Egyptian people. Unfortunately, it doesn't really look as if Egypt is headed into a period of calm and stability.
0: Noelle King in Cairo, thank you so much. Thank you. Later in the show, we revisit some of our favorite stories of the year, including a DNA detective story and those sticky earworms. That's all coming up on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at medtronicfoundation.org. And by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in select theaters, Friday. I'm Aaron
0: Schachter, and this is The World. For the rest of the show today, we'd like to bring you some of our favorite stories from the past year, but not just any stories. We're focusing on those with a kind of holiday feel to them. This is the season of giving, after all. That doesn't just mean gifts, it can mean donating your time, or your talents, or even risking your own life. Here's one such tale. It goes back to December, 1944. The scene was the Ardennes region in Belgium. One of World War II's bloodiest battles was underway. The Germans attacked U.S. troops along the front lines in what became known as the Battle of the Bulge. The Belgian town of Bastogne was right at the heart of the action. Many acts of heroism from that battle have been recounted over the years, but none quite like the one you're about to hear. The world's Clark Boyd originally reported this story in December
5: of last year. Martin King drives his Ford minivan in a forest just outside of Bastogne.
6: Now, there's no monument here telling you what this place is and what it's all about. But what I'm going to show you is actually quite remarkable.
5: King is a military historian. He leads me deeper into the forest. Before long, rain and sleet start to fall. King is Scottish, but he's lived and worked in Belgium for 30 years now. He's interviewed countless veterans and co-authored a book called Voices of the Bulge. He loves giving visitors to Bastogne the -the behind-the-scenes glimpse of the battle.
6: Now, what I find remarkable is that 67 years after the fact, you can still quite clearly see the foxholes here.
5: This was the scene of ferocious frontline action in the Battle of the Bulge. Imagine it, King tells me, with two feet of snow, the ground frozen solid. Fog so thick, you can't see five feet in front of you, and the German army only a couple of hundred yards away. Old newsreels helped paint the grim scene around Bastogne in December 1944. The German shelling was horrific, and medical supplies and personnel were hard to find, so some locals volunteered as nurses. In the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, there's a scene set in Bastogne, A white Belgian nurse chats with an army medic outside a first aid station. They're discussing another volunteer, a black nurse.
2: Where did she come from, the black girl? The Congo. How'd she get here? Just like me. She came to help.
5: It turns out that the black girl from the Congo is not a fictional character. Her name's Augusta Chiwi, and hers was one of the great untold war stories, says historian Martin King.
6: This story is the most amazing story I've ever heard. And, you know, I mean, you can sort of, like, you know, take the hero story of, you know, uh, he did so much that day and he was a hero and he shot all these people and he had the big guns. But this, to me, had something else. It had a humanity that I'd never come across.
5: Augusta Chiwi was born in 1921 in the Belgian Congo. Her father was a white veterinarian, originally from Bastogne. Her mother was Congolese. When she was nine, her father brought her to live with relatives in Bastogne. Chiwi later studied nursing in the city of Leuven. In December of 1944, she went home to Bastogne for Christmas.
6: De la neige
5: <gasps> The snow, oh, the fog, Chiwi now recalls. When she arrived, the town was in U.S. hands and the front was some miles away. A few days later, though, the Germans surrounded Bastogne. Chiwi and her family hid in the basement. Then, a few days before Christmas, there came a knock at the door. It was a U.S. Army medic named John Pryor, known as Jack. Jack Pryor arrived at the house, Chiwi tells me. My ambulance driver's been killed. There's no one left, Pryor told her. Chiwi volunteered as a nurse. She worked at the makeshift first aid station in town. She even donned a U.S. Army uniform when her own clothing became bloody. Then she volunteered for something much more dangerous. On a windy hill outside Bastogne, there's a U.S. war memorial. Chimes ring every 15 minutes to remind visitors of the sacrifices made by American soldiers. Nearby is a field that was part of the front line back in 1944. Historian Martin King says Chiwi risked everything to help the wounded U.S. soldiers there.
6: She was actually going out into this field here on our right. The Germans had the whole area zeroed. And they were hitting this with 88s and mortars and heavy machine guns. And she she talks often to me and to other people. She's mentioned it, that the ground was being raked up around her as she was trying to retrieve the bodies.
5: Then, on Christmas Eve 1944, the aid station in Bastogne was hit by a German bomb. More than two dozen U.S. soldiers were killed. So was a volunteer nurse. This is Bastogne's main square. Not far from here stands the spot where the aid station was located, It's now a Chinese restaurant. A plaque commemorates those who died when the aid station was bombed. Some books about the Battle of the Bulge say Chiwi died in the explosion. But historian Martin King didn't buy it. A few years back, a contact in the Belgian army told him that Chiwi was still alive. King found her in a retirement home just outside Brussels and got her to tell her story. In a documentary made a few years ago, Chiwi remembers the night the aid station was hit. She was sipping some Christmas Eve champagne with Dr. Jack Pryor in a building next door.
1: So a bottle of champagne was opened, a glass was passed around, and I do not know whether he finished filling the glass, but we heard something coming screaming towards us. And then a big bang and all the windows were blown out.
5: Chiwi was blown through a wall but she survived. After the explosion, she simply got up and started helping Jack Pryor tend the wounded. She continued to volunteer until the Germans were pushed back and the siege of Bastogne ended. For years, Chiwi went for long stretches of time without speaking about her war experiences at all. But the more Martin King coaxed out of her, the more he realized that Chiwi should be honored for her service. He wrote letters to the U.S. Army and to the Belgian King, and it finally paid off. Earlier this year, Chiwi was honored by King Albert II. And just last week, the U.S. Army did its part for Augusta, now Lady Chiwi. <music> Chiwi was given the U.S. Army's Civilian Award for Humanitarian Service in a ceremony in Brussels. Colonel J.P. McGee, who commands the Bastone Brigade of the 101st Airborne Division, presented the award to her.
7: Ma'am, you embody
0: what is best and most kind in all of us. It is an honor to share the stage with you and to be able to say on behalf of U.S. veterans everywhere, thank you. The number of lives that you touched is incalculable. There are men and women in America who would never have a father or a grandfather if you hadn't been there to provide them basic medical care.
5: During the ceremony, Augusta Chiwi, who's now 90, smiled, blew kisses, and waved to her family in the audience. I asked if she was happy to be honored almost 70 years later. Would. Yes, Chiwi told me, see, I've had a good life. I've got my children, my grandchildren. And she added, pointing to her head, I've still got my marbles. As historian Martin King told me, America honors its heroes. It just needs to be reminded sometimes who those heroes are. For the world, this is Clark Boyd, Bastogne, Belgium.
0: A quick update. We're happy to report that Augusta Chiwi is still alive and well at the age of 91. Historian Martin King is currently writing a second book on the events described in Clark's story. If you'd like to see some of the people and places Clark mentioned, we've got a slideshow at theworld.org. You're listening to PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter, still to come on The World Tunes That Get Stuck in Your Head.
2: There's a particular subway train that I ride, and as it's speeding up, it makes this interval. Ba-da. Every time I hear the ba-da, I immediately think of da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da.
1: PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Welcome back to a special holiday edition of the program. We're bringing you some of our favorite moments from the show over the past year. So in keeping with the holiday spirit, let's talk about family. Many of you are probably spending today with loved ones or not, as the case may be. Anyway, the question is, what do you know about your family? Ancestry websites let you look up historical records online and pool information with your relatives, but these days you can go far beyond just researching your family tree. You can get your DNA analyzed for more clues about your past. Back in March, the world's Carol Zoll decided to see what she could find out from her genes.
3: This is Carol Zoll interviewing Ray Zoll,
8: my grandmother, or Bobby in it.
7: It used to be that if you wanted to find out about your family history, you had to sit down with your relatives and ask them what they knew.
2: Now, Mrs. Zoll, could you tell us about your childhood? What can I tell you? What would you like to Tell know? me about your life.
7: That recording is from 1978, when I was 11 years old. Armed with my blue Panasonic tape recorder, I'd persuaded my grandmother, my booby, to grant me an interview.
1: Where were you born? I was born in a small place. The name was called Kastuki. What? Kastuki. Kastuki, Where it's a went? country, small place. What country was it in here? That was uh, uh, Russian Poland, Russian
7: Poland. The location of my grandmother's village was confusing to me then, and it's still confusing now. She was born at the beginning of the 20th century, in what is now Belarus, but was then Poland, or as she put it, Russian Poland. I've never been able to find her village, Kashuki, on a map, and I don't even know the names of the places my other relatives came from, which has made it hard to trace my roots. But 34 years later, I finally have a new lead on my family tree, and it doesn't involve a tape recorder. That's me a few months ago, spitting into a plastic tube to provide a DNA sample. This is kind of disgusting. I'm kind of out of spit. Advances in the field of genomics have made it possible to use a person's DNA to find out where their ancestors may have come from. Recently, this kind of analysis has become available and affordable to the general public, and I've been wanting to try it ever since I heard about it. So, for about $200, I signed up with a company called 23andMe. It's 23 because we all have 23 pairs of chromosomes, and the next thing I knew... I was mailing my saliva to their lab. And that lab, the first step they take is to extract the DNA from the saliva. Joanna Mountain is senior director of research at 23andMe. And then they take that DNA, and it gets cut up into little pieces, and they put the DNA onto what we call a chip. Human DNA is like a code made up of 3 billion letters. 23andMe doesn't look at all of those letters, or positions as they're called just about a million of them. And those positions are chosen because they are particularly interesting because they vary from one person to another. It's those interesting positions that testing companies are using to find out all kinds of information, from diseases you could be at risk for in the future to details about your past.
9: The goal was to see what we could find out about ourselves.
7: Harvard researcher Joe Pickrell is one of about a dozen people, all scientists or experts in genomics, who've made their genetic data available to the public on a website called Genomes Unzipped. While Joe and the other folks at Genomes Unzipped wanted to blog about issues surrounding genetic testing, Joe wasn't really expecting any big personal discoveries.
9: And so what happened is actually the first day we put this data online, There's a guy who runs a a website where he does ancestry analysis. And so he took all of our data and put it through his software.
7: Pickrell had always thought his ancestors came from Ireland, Italy, and the U.K. But now there was something new in the mix.
9: It turned out in his analysis that I had some Jewish ancestry.
7: Pickrell was skeptical.
9: I had never heard anything about Jewish ancestry in my family and had no idea that that was even a possibility.
7: But he started running his own analyses. And the closer he looked the more it seemed he did have Jewish roots. And then he spoke to his family.
9: And in the end, it turns out that it's true.
7: Pickrel found out that his great-grandfather was Jewish. He'd immigrated to the U.S. from Poland and married a Catholic woman. And they were worried about discrimination, so they decided to keep the Jewish ancestry secret. So...
9: They just said that he was Irish.
7: Now, in contrast to Joe, I've always known that my ancestors were Jewish. My entire family tree consists of European Jews, also known as Ashkenazi Jews. So I've always imagined my ancestors as people who spoke Yiddish and listened to music like this. But since Ashkenazi spent centuries wandering around Europe, living among different populations, I've always wondered, who else was in my family tree? After all, my mother's mother and all her siblings had red hair and blue eyes, and people always think my sister, a redhead with freckles, is Irish. So could I possibly have Celtic forebears? Maybe that would explain my connection to Scotland. I went there to study Celtic literature for a year and ended up staying for over a decade. Or maybe I have ancestors from some other European population. In theory, I could. But what actually showed up in my DNA analysis was a very Ashkenazi Jewish-looking genome. It looks like about two-thirds of it is traced back to Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, either in you know Russia, Poland, Belarus, and so on. Joanna Mountain of 23andMe went over my results with me. She explained that I share a lot of DNA segments with other people in their database whose known ancestry is also Ashkenazi Jewish. And that's how testing companies determine ancestry. They compare your genes to known reference populations to see which ones they resemble most. So this is where your Jewish ancestry really pops out. So that's all the DNA testing could tell me? that my ancestors were Jewish? All that spitting, and $200 later, the big headline is something I already knew. In other words, I'm exactly who I always thought I was. It's still pretty amazing that a scientist can look at my DNA and see that I have ancestors from Belarus or Russia, just like my grandparents told me. But think how cool it would have been to have found something completely unexpected, like being Norwegian, or Native American, or even Scottish. Maybe I just wanted a surprise, or at the very least, more answers to some of my questions. How
8: did your uncle look? Did your uncle have a piano? And how did you look
1: when you were little?
7: I don't know about my great-great-uncle's piano, but among my test results, there was one piece of information to chew on, and that came from something called my mitochondrial DNA. And that piece of DNA is handed down from mother to child. So all of us can trace our maternal lineage back through the mother's 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 mother. My mitochondrial DNA traces back to a woman who lived about 15,000 years ago in southwestern Europe. What's interesting is that this particular DNA isn't common among Ashkenazi Jews, which means that somewhere on my mother's line, there was probably a non-Jewish woman who married one of my Jewish ancestors. That's not so surprising, given the red hair and the history of Jews in Europe. But the fact that you can read that story in my genes takes it to a different level. And while I haven't learned anything especially new about where I came from, the science behind this is changing really fast. Sometime in the next decade, the cost of having your whole genome sequenced, all three billion letters of the code, will become affordable. And when that happens, says Harvard's Joe Pickrell, that'll change everything all over again.
9: So what you'd be able to do is look at an individual's genome and say, all right, they have this mutation which arose in a particular village in the south of France, for example. And then you'd be able to say with nearly 100% certainty that you have some ancestor who came from that particular village.
7: So now I'm waiting for the day when I can have my entire genome sequenced. But in the meantime... The most exciting thing I've learned about my ancestry is something that goes back a lot further than some European village. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Stone Age. New studies suggest that humans may have interbred with Neanderthals tens of thousands of years ago. And the 23andMe website recently added a feature that lets you see what percentage, if any of your DNA comes from Neanderthals. So I clicked on the link and got my result. Somewhere up the line, many thousands of years before the red hair and the mitochondrial DNA were part of the story, before the dawn of recorded time or the existence of words like Europe or Ashkenazi, I was a twinkle in a Neanderthal's eye. For the world, I'm Carol Zoll.
0: That's not the end of Carol's story, by the way. After it aired in March, she ended up finding out much more about her family, and you can read all about it at theworld.org. Now, if you are hanging out with family today, chances are you'll be gathering around a table, sharing a meal. We've aired lots of great food-related stories this year, and this next one was one of the best. It involves a condiment called Maggie that people all over the world lay claim to. Aurora Almondral first reported this story back in June.
8: We're in Devine Muregijimanes' kitchen in Brooklyn. She's frying onions and chopping cilantro. So we're going to make ugali. It's a thick pasty starch made with cassava flour. She serves it with fish and a fragrant sauce. This is a popular meal back in Burundi. Among the essential ingredients in Devine's kitchen is a little amber glass bottle of Maggie seasoning. Maggie's a salty brown liquid that's a little like soy sauce but more intense. Sometimes it makes a difference between food becoming African and not African. When Devine first moved to America she lived in West Virginia. She says it was impossible to make a proper Burundian meal. Nothing that related to my like there was no Maggie cubes possible and the cilantro they used here was crap. Years later, she finally found Maggie in a Cincinnati market. The first meal she made was... Beans and rice. Actually, it was beans and rice and meats, too. That was the first dish. Because, ah, it's like, that's such an African, at least Burundian. It's like, it reminds me so much of home. Maggie is so much a part of her culture that Devine has always assumed it's African. I don't
1: know where it comes from.
8: I haven't even inquired where it comes from. All I know is that it's African full stop. Wherever else it comes from, they don't need it. When I tell her it doesn't come from Africa, she's kind of disappointed. Yeah, my dreams are shattered. It's okay. She can't quite believe it's true. So now I have to wonder, how does African food taste without Maggie?
7: How do you taste before Maggie arrived? One fifty and two fifty
8: for Davina is not the only one who lays claim to Maggie. Just a subway right away from her house is the Polish G.I. Delicatessen in Manhattan. It's a small store packed with Polish food. On the shelves, next to packets of powdered vanilla, tins of herring, and jars of Polish preserves, owner Grace Iwook stocks Maggie Seasoning.
5: Polish people buy
7: this lot. You have to use always.
8: Maggie is a staple in Polish cooking but you'll also find the distinctive yellow and red label in Chinese grocery stores, Mexican markets, and German specialty stores. Maggi does actually come from somewhere. Maggi seasoning was invented in Switzerland in 1886 by a Swiss-German named Julius Maggi. It was one of the first industrial mass-produced foods. It was intended to make soups and stews taste heartier for factory workers who didn't have much money for meat. Maria Cristina lives in New York, but she grew up near a Maggie factory in Austria. She was surprised when I told her that Maggie is popular in other countries, like the Philippines, where I'm from. I grew up thinking Maggie was a Filipino taste. Really? It has a Filipino taste? To me, yeah. I thought that's where it came from. Wow, I always thought it had a very
9: Austrian-German taste. It's creepy. It's really creepy. I don't know how something like this can actually happen.
8: At Maharlika, a Filipino restaurant in Manhattan's East Village, Maggie gets a place at the table alongside bottles of spicy vinegar. Maharlika plays on Maggie's kitschy cult status back in the Philippines. But people here have an idea why Maggie seems so ubiquitous. It has to do with umami, which is...
4: It's a flavor profile, but it's also a sensation.
8: Tofer Chung is a server at Maharlika. Umami is often thought of as the fifth taste, after sweet, salty, sour, and bitter. It was first described in Japan in 1909, and it comes from foods that contain a lot of glutamic acid, like ripe tomatoes, aged cheese, and MSG, which Maggie has a lot of.
1: It's supposed to evoke goodness, and just the most raw, natural state of goodness and food.
8: Maggie has enough of its own flavor so you know it when you taste it. But it's Maggie's umami that makes food taste more Polish, more Burundian, more Mexican, or more Filipino. And that's probably why immigrants from those countries and many others have come to think of Maggie's seasoning as the flavor of home. For the world, I'm Aurora Almadral in New York.
0: Aurora Almondral's story was produced with the help of Feet in Two Worlds, which brings the work of immigrant journalists to public radio. It's a project of the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School. Aurora's story generated some great comments on our website. Devine Morigiamana, who Aurora interviewed for the story, even stopped by to say she still believes Maggie's seasoning comes from Africa. Check out some other memories of Maggie or leave your own at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schacter and this is the world.
5: Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle
0: Hi ah, yes, yeah. that time of year, the chance to hear the same songs over and over and over again. Chances are even when they're not playing out loud, they're playing in your head. Well, for this special holiday edition of The World, we want to bring you one of our favorite music stories from the past year. It's about why certain songs get stuck in our heads. Here's the world's Ritu Chatterjee with a story that first aired in February.
10: It was mid-morning on a Sunday several weeks ago when, for no apparent reason, this popped into my head. Funky now I'm told this song by rapper Tone Lope was a hit in the 90s. But I'd never heard it until the night before, when I was at a karaoke bar and my friend Jay sang it.
9: cool in at a bar, and I'm looking for some action. But like McJagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. The girls are all around. When
10: it reappeared in my head long. the next day, I could hear Jay singing the chorus
9: again. Funky Co Medina. And again. Funky Co Medina. And again. Funky Co Medina.
10: I was stuck with the song for nearly a day and a half before it finally went away. But it left behind a nagging question. Why do we get songs stuck in our heads in the first place? I figured someone must be trying to find an answer. Um, My name is Dr. Vicky Williamson. Williamson is a psychologist at Goldsmiths College in London. A few years ago, she became fascinated by tunes that stick in our heads. I personally couldn't believe how little there was in terms of research on this phenomenon. It seemed to happen to me very frequently. She found that scientists used a range of terms to describe the experience. Stuck song syndrome, sticky music. The most common was this, earworm. In 2009, Williamson collaborated with a BBC radio program in the UK and asked listeners to email and text their experiences with these so-called earworms.
6: My bloody earworm is that bloody George Harrison song you played yesterday I've got changes by David My
10: earworm's still alive by Pearl Jam and has been for days. Williamson to collected to more stories through an international online survey. Then she looked for patterns to understand what causes these tunes to automatically pop into our heads and stay there. She found several triggers. The first one is music exposure, which means the person has heard the music recently. No surprise there. That explains why I was stuck with Funky Called Medina. Another unsurprising finding was that if you hear a song repeatedly, you're more likely to get stuck with it. But sometimes songs pop into our heads even when we haven't heard them for a long time. In this case, something in our current environment may trigger the memory of a song. Williamson experienced this herself recently when she was in her office and noticed an old shoebox. And it's from a shop called Faith. And just by reading the word Faith, my memory went down a line of dominoes and eventually reached the song Faith by George Michael. And then he was in my head for the rest of the afternoon. Williamson says she found another trigger, stress. One woman in Williamson's survey said this song first got stuck in her head when she was 16 and taking a big exam.
7: She now gets that song at every single moment of stress in her life. So wedding, childbirth,
10: everything. The song, by the way, is Nathan Jones by Bananarama. But why is it that music gets stuck in our heads? Why not lines from movies or TV shows or books? I asked neuroscientist Daniel Levitin of McGill University in Montreal. He's an expert on the neuroscience of music. He's been thinking about the phenomenon and he frequently experiences it.
2: There's a particular subway train that I ride sometimes and as it's speeding up, it makes this interval. Ba-da. Every time I hear the ba-da, I immediately think of Da da, da 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 I just can't help myself, and then I got that song stuck in my head for a while.
10: Levitin thinks there may be an evolutionary explanation for why music sticks in our brains. modern humans have been around for some two hundred thousand years, but Levitin says written language may have been invented only five thousand years ago
2: so. For a very long period of time, we needed to remember information, important information like um, where the well is or uh, what foods are poisonous and which aren't, or how to care for a wound so that it won't become infected.
10: Levitin thinks for most of human history, people memorize this kind of information through songs. That practice continues today in cultures with strong oral traditions. Levitin says the combination of rhythm, rhyme, and melody provides reinforcing cues that make songs easier to remember than words alone.
2: So it may be the case that brains and music, in effect, selected each other you know, through Darwinian natural selection and co-evolved in such a way that songs were intended to get stuck in our heads. And that's why we still have them. It's a vestige of
10: that. Of course, that's just a hunch, but he says the main question people ask him about the phenomenon of stuck songs is this. How do we turn it off? Levitin doesn't know, but he offers a piece of advice. You just think of another song and hope that that'll push out the first one. But then, of course, you might just end up with a new song stuck in your head. The world's
0: Ritu Chatterjee there discussing earworms. Ritu's piece generated a lot of online comments. You can share your own earworms and see what songs are stuck in other people's heads at theworld.org. And as our gift to you, we'd like to offer you an earworm. Mike Wilkins is one of our sound engineers, and he's something of an expert when it comes to holiday music. Every year he puts together a compilation of some of the best and worst tracks. So for your Christmas Day earworm, we're going Latin. Chances are good you'll be singing Mambo Santa Mambo for a few days. And trust me, you'll thank us.
2: They have Christmas on in Mexico A lot of places that you wanted to go You're somewhere you really
0: don't know Santa's gonna do the mambo <clears throat> Santa's doing the mambo this Christmas Santa's doing the mambo this
6: Christmas Santa's doing the mambo this Christmas Mambo Santa Mambo
1: Mumble if you can. Shoot, You
6: can mumble, little little You can mumble, little You can mumble, little bit, you mumble all the kitties say, Mumble, sad, mumble. you can. Well, here comes with his
0: By the way, you may have noticed something missing from the show today. That's right, our geo-quiz. What can we say? We decided to give you and your brain, not to mention your atlas, the day off. That's all from us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Aaron Schachter. Shooby dooby doo, shooby dooby doo, Happy holidays,
10: everyone.
1: The World is a co production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at ritaallen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet.
0: PRI Public Radio International